From New York, this is Democracy Now! This bloodshed must end. This bloodshed will end. Today, I'm announcing a surge of federal law enforcement into American communities plagued by violent crime. President Trump is sending a surge of federal agents into Democratic cities with protests against police violence and racism. We'll go to Philadelphia to speak with District Attorney Larry Krasner, who's warning he'll arrest agents if they kidnap or attack protesters. Then to Chicago, where protesters are demanding justice after police officers punched teenage activist Miracle Boyd in the face, knocking out her teeth during a protest when people were trying to topple a statue of Christopher Columbus. There is no way I should have left a protest bruised and battered for exercising my freedom of speech and freedom to assemble. I am disgusted and never would I have ever thought I'd become a victim to the biggest gang in America. And the harrowing scenes of paramilitary-style units in the streets of American cities have shocked mainstream America. But the violent presence of federal border agents is not unfamiliar to many black and brown communities, especially those along the border. The Border Patrol um, is, it does patrol the border, not only just the, the, the boundary line, but in 100-mile jurisdictions with extra constitutional powers, meaning that the Border Patrol um, can do things above and beyond what normal law enforcement can do. They can put up checkpoints, they do roving patrols, they can pull over people for, you know, reasons of, they, the not even national security reasons. We'll speak with Todd Miller, who documents all of this in his book, Empire of Borders, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world, and with Professor Cecilia Menjivar, originally from El Salvador, who lived this. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the quarantine report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Trump has announced he's sending a, quote, surge of federal officers into Chicago, Albuquerque, and other large Democrat-run cities, claiming it's needed to combat a rise in crime. I am announcing that the Department of Justice will immediately surge federal law enforcement to the city of Chicago, the FBI, ATF, DEA, U.S. Marshal Service and Homeland Security will together be sending hundreds of skilled law enforcement officers to Chicago to help drive down violent crime. Trump's announcement came as he faces increasing criticism for deploying paramilitary-style units to Portland, Oregon, where unidentified federal officers have attacked anti-racist protesters and even snatched activists off the streets in unmarked vans. The Portland City Council has voted to end cooperation between local police and federal law enforcement. On Wednesday night, federal forces fired tear gas at protesters once again. Among those hit was Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, who also serves as Portland's police commissioner. Meanwhile, the American Civil Liberties Union has sued the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Marshal Service, as well as the city of Portland for attacking medics while they care for injured protesters. 
For a second day in a row, the United States reported more than 1,000 COVID-19 deaths Wednesday. The New York Times reports nearly 60,000 people are now hospitalized for COVID-19 across the country, nearly eclipsing the number of hospitalizations during the peak of the pandemic in April. California set new single-day records Wednesday for cases and hospitalizations. The U.S. death toll has now topped 143,000, with the total number of confirmed cases approaching 4 million. The governors of Indiana, Minnesota and Ohio all announced new orders requiring residents to wear masks in public. Meanwhile, a number of large businesses, including Costco, Walmart, Winn-Dixie and Whole Foods, are now requiring customers to wear masks. On Wednesday, the Trump administration awarded a $2 billion contract with Pfizer and a German partner to make 100 million doses of a COVID-19 vaccine that's still being tested. President Trump held another televised coronavirus briefing Wednesday, where he falsely claimed children don't transmit the virus. Trump conducted the briefing alone. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, was not invited to the briefing, but he will make a public appearance later today. He will throw out the first pitch at the Washington Nationals opening game. Major League Baseball is beginning a shortened season today. Games will be played in empty ballparks. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is expected to unveil a new $1 trillion COVID-19 relief package today. The deal includes a new round of stimulus checks, $16 billion in new funding for COVID-19 testing, and $70 billion for K-12 to schools. Under the deal, the Trump administration will also spend $9 billion already allocated for testing that the administration has not yet used, despite widespread shortages in many states. It remains unclear if Republican lawmakers will support extending a program that's given unemployed workers an extra $600 in weekly jobless benefits. The number of global COVID-19 cases has now topped 15 million. On Wednesday, Brazil set a new single-day record with nearly 68,000 new cases and almost 1,300 deaths. Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro has extended his two-week quarantine after testing positive twice for the coronavirus. Meanwhile, one of Brazil's most influential indigenous leaders, Aritana Yawalapiti, is in an intensive care unit being treated for COVID-19. In South Africa, nearly 600 people died from the virus on Wednesday, a new single-day high. India has also set a new record, with nearly 46,000 new cases over the past 24 hours. The overall death toll in India is now approaching 30,000. In Guatemala, public health officials are reporting COVID-19 is spreading inside one of the nation's largest public hospitals as overcrowding is causing non-COVID patients to come into contact with infected patients. Meanwhile, in Israel, 34 people were arrested earlier this week during ongoing protests against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's handling of the coronavirus pandemic and corruption. This comes as the United Nations warns Israel's threat to annex parts of the West Bank has hindered Palestinian efforts to control the pandemic. The United Nations Special Envoy made the remarks a day after Israeli authorities demolished a coronavirus testing center in the city of Hebron. In immigration news, a federal judge Wednesday denied pleas to release immigrant families imprisoned at three ICE 
family detention centers—that's Immigration Customs Enforcement in Texas and Pennsylvania—despite concerns over rising coronavirus infections. This comes as a separate federal judge has given ICE until July 27th to release children from these jails, prompting fears that families will once again be separated. In related news, the Associated Press reports the Trump administration has been detaining immigrant children and toddlers as young as one year old in hotels, sometimes for weeks at a time, then deporting them. Immigrant rights attorneys say this violates federal anti-human trafficking laws that demand unaccompanied immigrant children be sent to government shelters or placed with sponsors. A private contractor working with ICE has reportedly been taking children to three Hampton Inn and Suites hotels in Arizona and at the Texas-Mexico border. The hotels have reportedly been used at least 200 times. In Canada, a federal court has ruled an asylum agreement with the United States is invalid, saying the U.S. violates the human rights of refugees. The safe third country agreement between Canada and the U.S. was established in 2004, and it required refugees seek asylum in the first safe country they reached in their journey. Refugees arriving in the United States uh, to the U.S.-Canada border were often turned away and forced to go back to the U.S. to apply for asylum there. Attorneys and refugees seeking refuge in Canada have long argued the U.S. is no longer safe for asylum seekers. In more immigration news, state senators in New York have passed the Protect Our Courts Act. The bill aims to bar immigration and customs enforcement agents from making arrests inside courthouses without a judicial warrant. On Capitol Hill, the Democratic-led House passed the No Ban Act on Wednesday. The legislation, authored by Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, aims to reverse all versions of President Trump's travel bans that target many predominantly Muslim countries. The House also approved a bill to remove Confederate statues from the U.S. Capitol. Seventy-two Republicans joined Democrats to approve the measure. The House also passed a bipartisan measure to allocate $900 million a year to acquire and preserve more land for public use and to spend $9.5 billion on the U.S. national parks over the next five years. The National Wildlife Federation described the Great American Outdoors Act as the most significant investment in conservation in decades. Meanwhile, in the Senate, Vermont Democrat Patrick Leahy has introduced the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement. Act, a bill to restore the landmark Voting Rights Act. The House has already approved similar legislation. The self-described anti-feminist attorney who suspected of ambushing the home of a federal judge in New Jersey and killing her son, has been linked to the recent murder of Mark Angelucci, a men's rights attorney in California who was shot dead on July 11th. The suspect in both cases, Roy Den Hollander, was found dead in an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound after he attacked the home of Judge Esther Salas, the first Latina federal judge in New Jersey appointed in 2011. Salas was not injured in the attack, but her son was killed, her husband critically injured. In Afghanistan, local authorities are reporting 45 people were killed, including at least eight civilians, in a series of airstrikes in eastern Afghanistan. The strikes reportedly targeted Taliban fighters. Charles Evers, the brother of Medgar Evers, has died at the age of 97. 
1963, Charles Evers became the Mississippi field director of the NAACP, taking the post held by his brother, who was assassinated by a white supremacist. In 1969, Charles Evers was elected mayor of Fayette, becoming the first African-American mayor in Mississippi since Reconstruction. And the South African anti-apartheid activist Andrew Langini has died at the age of 95. In 1964, he was sentenced to life in prison alongside Nelson Mandela and six others during the infamous Ravonia trial. He served 26 years in prison, much of it at Robben Island. In 2013, he spoke at Mandela's funeral. Madiba's greatness as a leader stems from his humility and an ingrained belief in the persuasion and respect for collective leadership. He believed in sharing insights and listening to and learning from others. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Good morning, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers around the country and around the world. Well, President Trump has announced Wednesday he's sending a surge of federal agents into Chicago, Albuquerque and other Democrat-run cities to crack down on Black Lives Matter protests, claiming the move is necessary to combat a rise in crime. This is Trump speaking this week. We're not going to leave New York and Chicago and Philadelphia, Detroit and Baltimore, and all of these, Oakland is a mess. We're not going to let this happen in our country, all run by liberal Democrats. This comes as the president faces increasing criticism for deploying paramilitary-style units to Portland, Oregon, where unidentified federal officers have attacked anti-racist protesters and even snatched activists off the streets in unmarked vans. On Wednesday night, Federal forces fired tear gas at protesters in Portland once again. Among those hit was Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, who also serves as Portland's police commissioner. Portland City Council voted to end cooperation between local police and federal law enforcement, and the American Civil Liberties Union is now suing the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Marshal Service, as well as the city of Portland for attacking medics while they cared for injured protesters. Trump has responded by saying federal agents are doing a fantastic job and is now threatening to deploy them across the country. Now, in a remarkable statement, the Philadelphia district attorney has warned Trump's police forces that he will criminally charge them if they bring these same tactics to Philadelphia. D.A. Larry Krasner issued the statement Wednesday that, quote, my dad volunteered and served in World War II to fight fascism like most of my uncles, so we would not have an American president brutalizing and kidnapping Americans for exercising their constitutional rights and trying to make America a better place, which is what patriots do. Anyone, including federal law enforcement who unlawfully assaults and kidnaps people, will face criminal charges from my office. Again, the words of Larry Krasner the district attorney of Philadelphia, who joins us now from Philadelphia for more. D.A. Larry Krasner, thank you for joining us. Can you explain how exactly you plan to arrest federal agents um, and what actions do you feel would warrant that? Uh, good morning. Well, first of all, we do not 
plan to arrest anyone. We plan we plan for people to obey the law. So if uh, any federal authorities were to come to Philadelphia and follow the law and follow the Constitution, the issue will not present, which is certainly what we all hope. But it's real simple. The law applies to the president of the United States, even though he doesn't think so. The law applies to law enforcement. The law applies to civilians. I mean, it is real simple. We have to be even handed. So if people are going to come to Philadelphia and in uniform, they're going to fracture the skulls of protesters with rubber bullets. They're going to jump out of rental vans and drag people into those vans without probable cause. They are committing crimes under the Pennsylvania statutes. These are Pennsylvania offenses over which the district attorney in Philly has jurisdiction over that area. And we can bring those charges. The law is very clear. Uh, We can proceed with those charges in state court. Under certain circumstances, they might end up being processed in federal court. But initially, we can bring those charges. We can pursue them. And as much as possible, we can put those individuals in front of a Philadelphia jury who might have something to say about those tactics. Well, I mean, the question is, does the president even have the legal authority to deploy uh, federal officers on the streets of uh, Philadelphia, irrespective of what they do? Uh, Cornell University constitutional law professor Michael Dorff said that federal authorities coming into states like this without the cooperation of state and local authorities is, quote, extraordinary outside the context of civil war. Uh, Larry Krasner, your response. So there, you know, there are certain kinds of overlapping jurisdiction. A couple of classic ones are over drug offenses, over gun offenses. And there are collaborations between state and federal law enforcement that go on all the time. In fact, they are happening in my office right now. Uh, in many different investigations. But there is also a longstanding uh, sort of protocol to this in which you inform each other of what you're doing. Some of the time, one of the, you know, one of the prosecutorial entities or police entities gets out of the way so as not to trip over it. That's not what we're seeing here. What we are seeing here is, A, who knows what, because it's Donald Trump, who knows what entity is going to show up in what uniform to do what, And what we are seeing is absolutely no interest in collaboration. But I think it's very important not to overstate what's really happening here. When, uh, you know, the president talks about how he's going to take over cities. Really? Is that what you're going to do? In Chicago, there are 12,500 active police officers. The last number I heard coming from uh, the president was he was going to send 150 federal agents of some sort. Really? Wow. That's one percent. That is one percent of the normal police force in Chicago. So we should not lose sight of the reality that what Donald Trump always does is he's got some shiny object that he's he's shining over here and he wants us to pay attention to it because he's doing some dirt in some other location here. He obviously is doing a pretty effective job of trying to distract from his incredible failures, including his failures with the pandemic and with the economy at this point. So it remains to be seen what exactly he'll do, if anything, in Philadelphia. It remains to be seen to what extent this is all fluff. Obviously, there have been some pretty terrible things that have happened in Portland that appear without perfect information, because I don't have perfect information, but they appear to be illegal and blatantly so. But all I can say is if, if federal authorities want to come to Philadelphia and break the law, then they will face the law like everyone else. 
E.A. Krasner, can you talk about your family's history? And would you say that President Trump's move calling for a surge of these federal agents throughout the country, particularly in Democratic cities, um, would you call President Trump fascist? Um, I would say President Trump is definitely a wannabe fascist. I'm not sure he can spell the word. But he definitely is someone who's in love with uh, with dictators. He's in love with authoritarianism, brutality, racism, division, hate. His playbook is essentially the same playbook as the white supremacist playbook, which is, you know, as we see with uh, the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo movement, all this kind of stuff. We see that they are trying to take advantage of the peaceful protest, which is is the vast majority of what it is around George Floyd to become agent provocateurs to get into it. And to cause violence that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So once they have caused it, they can say, look at these people. Look at what these black people do or look at what these left wing people do. Well, they're not doing it. The Proud Boys are doing it. The Boogaloo uh, crew are doing it because, as they have repeatedly stated, they're looking to have a second civil war. As absurd as that may all sound, it's the same tactic that we're seeing with Donald Trump right now. We have cities that have not had unrest that have not had an uprising for weeks. The only thing that's been happening in Philly for weeks has been a moderate amount of peaceful protest, and yet the president is announcing to the nation that Philadelphia's out of control. No, it's not. I'm here. I live here. Police commissioner's here. We all see what's going on. There is no problem. There is no crisis that would in any way require federal intervention. But once again, if he sends troops of some sort, federal agents of some sort in here to stir things up, to requisition people, to beat people up, if he sends it in, he's going to cause unrest. So what I'm saying is he is acting as an agent provocateur by using his authority to send people in. And what is the real purpose of this from his perspective? It's probably not a second civil war. Uh, it's, he's much more short-sighted and narcissistic than that. His real purpose is to distract from his dismal record the fact that his campaign is dropping like a stone. In terms of my family history, uh, you know, I mean, it's just we have a lot of, of people or they're all almost all past now. But we have a lot of people in the family who were of an age that they volunteered and they served in World War Two. My dad served in the Pacific on a Pacific island at an air base. I had an uncle who was in Germany. He was an artillery spotter, which is one lousy job to have because you're in between both sides watching the shells that have been fired from both sides, and hopefully they don't land on you. That's a tough thing to do. I had another one who lost most of his hearing serving on uh, a Navy vessel. And going a little further than that, if you look to my wife's side of the family, her father was career military. He was not in World War II, but he flew planes in a couple of different wars and eventually ended up being a, a pilot for an ambassador to Afghanistan which is where my wife lived when she was a young child. So we go way back when it comes to this. That's not to you know say we're any different or any better. But we have someone here who avoided military service, not because he was a conscientious objector, but because he's entitled, privileged, cowardly, and lazy. We have this person pretending to be some kind of wannabe fascist. And um, it is intolerable. This is nothing that we can accept in the United States. Larry Krasner, I want to ask you about the people still locked up in Philadelphia's jails, despite the higher risk of contracting COVID. Uh, most of them are waiting for their day in court, which has been disrupted due to the spread of the virus. Many are bail eligible. The Philadelphia Community Bail Fund has been actively bailing people out during this time. Some activists have focused in particular on young people who are still imprisoned. This is a member of the 
a youth art and self-empowerment project named Brianna, describing what it was like when her juvenile son was recently incarcerated during COVID. I worried. I worried about my son. Is he eating? Is he safe? Is he cold? I also couldn't see my son because of COVID-19, which made it even worse. So it was 14 days that I only had a phone conversation with my son. There were no hugs. There were no kisses. Uh, D.A. Larry Krasner, do you think there are people locked up right now who should not be given the health risks? What is your office doing to release more people um, from what have been called death traps? I'm looking at an ad by the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund. They said, D.A. Larry Krasner, drop the charges, not your knee. They said charge more than 400 people in the last two days of protests. This was in the last weeks. Kept over 100 black youth in detention during COVID, incarcerated thousands of black Philadelphians in cages at risk of death during COVID. Can you respond to these um, accusations or criticisms against you? Well, you know, the the problem with a lot of these criticisms is they're completely out of context and, frankly, cynically out of context. The When we came into office, we were coming off of a city that had 10,000 people in county custody. We started with 6,500. We knocked it down to about 5,000 within a year and a half, which was the quickest progress towards decarceration, essentially, in the, the history of the city. And we are currently at 4,000. This is the lowest rate of incarceration in Philadelphia since the uh, about 1985. 1985. Um, and we have gotten there through a lot of extremely diligent and careful work. But you know, I would be misleading you if I told you I thought that people who were accused of murdering four people should be out of custody. They should not. They should be in custody before they kill five people. And I'm not making that up. We have someone sitting there who literally was a contract killer and who is associated with four different murders. We have someone else associated with five. Once again, you know, let's talk about the juveniles. When we came in, there were about 650 juveniles in custody, which was lower than it had been in the past. There's now on the it changes every day, of course, uh, but there's now something like 140. It is not enough simply to say that someone is a juvenile. If that juvenile has paralyzed another juvenile by shooting him in the back of the head behind a dumpster, there is a role that has to be played by the state in order to make sure that we do not have the slaughter of people on the street. So I, I do not have any reservation about saying that there are some people who need to be in custody even under these circumstances. But this office, working closely with the public defender's office, has done a remarkable job of uh, diminishing the harm that could have come from Philadelphia's jails becoming a, an epicenter. They have not become that. We have experienced, uh, based on my limited information, we've experienced a total of two deaths among the inmate population, I believe two deaths among the staff population. But as we compare that to national averages, a lot of the extremely hard work that we have done and that we're continuing to do has paid off. It's a real problem. I mean, I'm not going to kid you. It's a real problem in a city where ordinarily you have 100 new criminal cases a day that there's no easy exit door to the jail because the courts are closed and they've been closed for months and it does not look like they're going to open up quickly. But all, all things considered, when we are objective and fair about it, I think we've actually done an excellent job of keeping this population down, of being very surgical 
about which individuals need to be in custody at this time. I also think it is fair to say that, um, and I, I'm not going to get specific with which bail fund, but there's, you know, there's one of these bail funds that took a young man who had no prior record and was racking up one drug case after another in a very short period of time in a way that anyone experienced in criminal justice would say signifies that this person needs to be held in custody needs an intervention. But once again, the bail fund, uh, you know, went charging in, paid that person's bail. He came out and was killed on a corner shortly thereafter. He was on the corner because the bail fund, even though this young man who was only 18 and a half when it started, had collected six consecutive drug cases in a very short period of time. They ran and paid his bail and got him out the last time. We've seen another case. It was a domestic violence case where the defendant had uh, viciously harmed his long-term partner in a number of different states, been convicted for it, and over the objection of the DA's office, uh, who were trying to protect her, bail fund looked at none of that, ran and paid it, and she then suffered a terrible sexual assault at the hands of the same person. So it is not the case that every single person should get out all of the time. It is not the case that simply saying no matter what the offense, no matter what the record, no matter what the circumstances Everyone should get out. The life of that woman mattered. The life of that young man whose bail was paid and died mattered. It all matters. And we have to be careful about these things. Um, before we go, I wanted to ask you about Mumia Abu-Jamal, one of the most recognized cases in Philadelphia history. One of the least known facts of the case is that Mumia was nearly beaten to death at the crime scene. Within weeks of the end of the trial, a third of the police involved in his case were jailed for systematically tampering with evidence to obtain convictions in cases across Philadelphia. At least one police officer in the case, James Forbes, lied on the stand saying he'd properly handled guns. What are the recourses for addressing police corruption, both in Mumia Abu-Jamal's case and that of so many others in which police were jailed for wrongdoing, but the victims remained in jail? Some say Philadelphia has a history of cases like this. I asked you about Mumia Abu-Jamal when you were running for DA. You're now in for three years. What's happening in his case? So in terms of the broader question about corruption, one of the things that my office has done is we've established a police misconduct database. You might call it a list, but it's really a lot better than that, in which we have consistent with our constitutional obligation to give the defense all the information they're entitled to, including information that may be used by the defense to try to defeat our case as prosecutors. What happens is we keep data, we keep information, whether it is findings by police of lying or brutality, or it's a police officer having been charged with a crime in a different county, or it may even be a judge having made a decision that a particular police officer lied, or it could be you know, postings on Facebook that show bias uh, towards any particular group. We keep all of that information, and because it's a database, as soon as a new case comes into the system involving that officer, the information automatically uh, is is connected to the case and is then appropriately provided to the defense. That's never been done in Philadelphia before. It is a relatively high tech and we think kind of excellent solution. And it's also fair to the police because they are notified that they're on this database. They're given the opportunity to come in and explain why it may be biased. And the truth is sometimes it is because internal affairs is as political and as biased as anything else at certain times in certain cases. So that, you know, that's part of what we've done. We have exonerated at this point 14 people, and we've been in office for about 26 months. It is a sea change from everything that, that came before. Uh, and included on our police misconduct database, there are certain individuals 
who are categorized as ordinarily people we will not call. We will not call to testify because we do not trust their integrity. There are other people who are in a less difficult situation. As for Mumi Abu-Jamal, that is in about the 40th year of its litigation. We have some uh, things going on very actively in that case. We take that case uh, no more and no less seriously than every other case because of the notoriety about it. One of the things that I've certain, certainly seen in our work around exoneration and conviction integrity is I have seen that often the unfamous people get a whole lot less attention than the famous people. But what I can say in that regard is it is pending. There are certain restrictions on what we should appropriately say at this time. Uh, but it does, you know, it, it is a microcosm of the realities of what progressive prosecutors face now when they're trying to go back in time and do justice, when they're trying to do justice moving forward, when they're trying to comply with their obligations to give exculpatory information in a culture that used to shred and used to hide and used to destroy a culture that I experienced for almost 30 years as a criminal defense and civil rights attorney. Larry Krasner, I want to thank you for being with us, District Attorney of Philadelphia. Next, we go to Chicago, where Trump is saying he's sending a surge of federal agents. We'll look at how protesters are demanding justice after police officers punched out the teeth of an 18-year-old activist named Miracle Boyd. Stay with us. I saw a demon on my shoulders, looking like patriarchy, like scrubbing blood off the ceiling and bleaching another carpet. How my house get on it? Why toy and body don't embody all the life she wanted? The baby just 19. I know I dream all black. I say not everything. I'm mortalizing tweets, all caps. They say they found her dead. One girl missing, another one go missing. One girl missing, another but in the back, quiet as a church mouse. Basement studio when duty calls to get the verse out. I guess the ego hurt now. It's time to go to work. Wow, look at him go. He really doubts to write about me when the world is in smokes. When it's people in trees. When George was begging for his mother saying he couldn't breathe. He thought to write about me. One girl missing, another one go missing. One girl missing, another one. Yo, but little did I know all my reading would be about there is trans women being murdered and this is all he can offer and this is all y'all receive. Distract you from the convo with organizers. They talking abolishing the police and this is a new world order. We democratizing Amazon, we burn down borders. This is a new vanguard. This is a new vanguard. I'm the new vanguard. I saw a demon on my shoulders, looking like patriarchy, like scrubbing blood off the ceiling and bleaching another carpet. How my house get on it? While toy and body don't embody all the life she wanted. The baby just 19. I know I dream all black. I say not everything. I'm mortalizing tweets, all caps. They say they found her dead. One girl missing, another one go missing. One girl missing, another Song 33 by Chicago musician No Name. This is Democracy Now!, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We go now to Chicago, where protesters are demanding justice after police officers attacked a teenage activist last week during a demonstration in which people attempted to topple a statue of Christopher Columbus in Grant Park. An officer punched 18-year-old Miracle Boyd in the face, knocking out several teeth. Miracle is a recent high school graduate, an organizer with the group Good Kids Mad City. Journalists also reported being mistreated by police who used chemical sprays and batons on protesters. Police said 12 people were arrested. This is Miracle Boyd speaking at a news conference Monday. I was attacked by CPD, who violated a supreme statue over my life, safety, and well-being. Christopher Columbus did not discover America!
indigenous genocide and the transatlantic slave trade of Africans. Yet the police is protecting a statue of a man who died more than 500 years ago. The police are not serving and protecting. There is no way I should have left a protest bruised and battered for exercising my freedom of speech and freedom to assemble. I am disgusted and never would I have ever thought I'd become a victim to the biggest gang in America. That's Miracle Boyd speaking at a news conference on Monday. This comes as President Trump announced he's sending a surge of federal agents into Chicago. Mayor Lori Lightfoot responded on CNN. We do not want unconstitutional secret federal agents coming into our cities, grabbing our residents and detaining them and violating their rights. I've drawn a very bright line there, and we're not going to go back from that. For more, we go to Chicago to speak with Sheila Betty, professor of law at Northwestern University. She is the lawyer representing Miracle Boyd. Uh, professor Betty, thanks so much for joining us. Can you start off, before we talk about the surge, uh, in talking about what exactly happened to Miracle? Thank you so much for, for having me. Uh, so Miracle Boyd is a, uh, an activist, a, a freedom fighter. She works for an organization called Good Kids Mad City that really focuses on ending violence in the south and west sides of Chicago. And Miracle was at the protest on Friday, and she was doing what, what she does, which is uh, documenting police violence, um, trying to ensure that the, that the protest um, was going to occur without some of the violence that we've seen consistently um, during the uprisings in Chicago. She was filming the arrest of a man, um, and an officer came up to her and uh, and slapped her because she was filming this arrest, uh, and slapped her with such force that her front teeth were knocked out of her head. Uh, and this is consistent with what we've seen from the, the Chicago Police Department over the last three months in their response to these uprisings. And Sheila Bedi, could you explain that in uh, Chicago head strikes uh, like the one uh, America Boyd was subject to are considered a use of lethal force uh, in Chicago? Uh, so could you talk about that and what the implications of that are and what exactly it is that Miracle Boyd is calling for uh, restorative justice? Explain what what she'd like to see happen. Sure. So the city of Chicago is subject to a federal consent decree, and uh, the, the decree makes it clear that head strikes, uh, which is where police officers are using force to the head area, um, is a form of, of lethal force. It's a it's a it's a form of force that should only be used when lethal force can be justified. So if you're dealing with somebody um, who's suspected of a violent felony, if you're dealing with somebody who um, is an immediate threat. Um, to a police officer or to somebody else. That, of course, is not Miracle Boyd. Um, but what we've seen throughout these protests is police officers using that kind of, of lethal force um, against protesters in an effort to try to quell the movement, in an effort uh, to retaliate against protesters for the exercise of their, of their First Amendment speech. Uh, what Miracle is calling for at, at this time is for the officer to be fired. The videotape is very clear. Miracle was not a threat. Miracle was exercising her First Amendment. This officer came up to her um, and used this lethal force against her in retaliation for the exercise of her First Amendment rights. Um, and the other thing that Miracle is asking for is for this officer to engage in a restorative justice process. She's not asking for the officer to be charged. Um, she's asking for the officer to engage in a process where she can really explain to him what this has done to her, 
what this violence has done to her, how it's affected to her, the trauma that um, she is she is experiencing. So so that's that's her her demand of this officer at this time. And now, if you can respond to uh, what President Trump is saying he's doing in Chicago, um, it looks like he's particularly focusing, and he's clearly said, you know, Democratic mayors particularly focusing on cities that have mayors who are women and women of color. And I mean, no, no question about that. Um, during uh, Donald Trump's comments yesterday, uh, he made it very clear that this action was about quelling the movement, um, that this action was about uh, specifically taking on the activists who've called for defunding the police um, and that he's tying intercommunal violence um, to those demands, which is just not supported by data, not supported uh, by the facts. Um, it is also very clear that uh, this request for, for the federal troops to come into Chicago was supported by the Chicago Police Union. Um, the police in Chicago have a long history of cooperating with the federal government um, to violate the rights of people in the Chicago community. Uh, there's, there's a real concern that that, that is what is going to happen here, that the deployment of these, of these troops um, that that's been done to try to quell these protests, um, and and that's unconstitutional, um, and and that's something that, um, that that will absolutely be challenged in court. Um, you know, the issue that we have right now is that the Chicago Police Department um, has systematically attempted to uh, to chill the First Amendment rights of, of protesters, and and that has been happening on a regular basis. It's been happening in a very systematic way. Um, the overlay of, of additional federal troops um, is deeply disturbing and what that might mean for, for, for these protests. Sheila Betty, we want to thank you for being with us. So just to answer in a word, you're suing on behalf of Miracle Boyd? Uh, Mi Miracle Boyd will be filing a civil rights lawsuit. That's correct. Sheila Betty, professor of law at Northwestern University, lawyer representing Miracle Boyd. When we come back, the harrowing scenes of paramilitary-style units in the streets of American cities may shock mainstream America, but the violent presence of federal border agents is not unfamiliar to many black and brown communities. Stay with us. Could have been me. Could have been me. Three Sacred Souls. This is Democracy Now!, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We turn now to the harrowing scenes of paramilitary-style units in the streets of American cities like Portland, Maine, like Portland, Oregon, where heavily armed federal agents with no agency markings have snatched people off the streets, forced them into unmarked vans. The developments have shocked mainstream America. This is MSNBC host Brian Williams. 
overseas, if we saw these pictures, we'd call it something like a, a military junta under a Mussolini or a Pinochet. We would make nothing of it. It would just be a Wednesday. Just be a Wednesday. But the violent presence of federal border agents is not unfamiliar to many black and brown Americans, especially those who live along the border. The brutality now seen on U.S. streets is also all too recognizable to global communities who have faced the terror of U.S. trained military forces, sometimes death squads from Iraq to Kenya to Guatemala. The scene unfolding in Portland, Oregon, has also drawn comparisons to U.S.-backed death squads that terrorize Latin America for decades. For more, we're joined by two guests. Cecilia Menjivar is a professor of sociology at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, where she focuses on state and gender-based violence in Central American immigration enforcement in the U.S., originally from El Salvador. Also with us, uh, reporter Todd Miller, who's covered border security and immigration for over a decade. He's the author of Empire of Borders, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world. Also author of Border Patrol Nation, Dispatches from the front lines of Homeland Security. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Professor Menjivar, let's begin with you. Um, if you can respond to what's happening in Portland, Oregon, as you heard Brian Williams say, I mean, this may be familiar to others. He talked about Chile. He talked about Mussolini. But here in America, um, you know a different picture of this country, and also back to where you came from, in El Salvador, intimately connected to the United States, especially in the 1980s, sadly, uh, through— soldiers, often U.S.-trained soldiers, uh, carrying weapons that might come from the United States. Yes. Um, thank you. Thank you for um, the, the questions, because what is happening in Portland and probably in other cities in the United States um, was, as Brian Williams said, uh, the order of the day uh, for most of Latin America during the 1970s and 80s. And, for instance, the, the image of an unmarked van taking people from the streets and taking them who knows where, is it, it brings back memories to Latin Americans who lived through disappearances of families and friends and co-workers for a long period of time. So this is, this is something very familiar, very, um, very close to... to um, to Latin America, so throughout the region, because these were strategies of state violence and state control that um, that were implemented throughout the region during the military dictatorships um, of the 70s and 80s. Well, I'd like to bring Todd Miller into the conversation. Todd, you are the author of a book called Empire of Borders, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world. So could you talk about that specific, uh, your subtitle, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world, and then specifically uh, how the role of the CBP changed after 9-11? Sure. Um, one, the, in terms of the expansion of the U.S. border around the world, um, I... Uh, even thinking specifically about the specific force that you that was in Portland and with the BORTAC unit of the U.S. Border Patrol that was pulling people off off the streets. Uh, over over the years, I've in my, during my in doing research, I've had 
you know, I've come across them on several occasions. And one and on one occasion was in Guatemala, and I was going to um, a military base to meet with a commander of a new of a new border uh, patrol force that they were forming there. And my whole purpose of going there was was to um, to uh, see that how much the United States was behind that. Uh, the, you know, the creation of that border force. And so I got there late, but I tried to convince, you know, the soldiers at the gate of the, of the, of the military base, if, if, you know, to, to, if I could still meet with the commander. And while I was waiting there, one of the soldiers came up to me and asked me if I was from Bortac. I went, what? And there's a Bortac. And I couldn't believe my ears, really. Bortac, uh, nobody, hardly anyone in the United States even knew who Bortak was, but here I was 1,500 miles away from the U.S. southern border, a soldier in Guatemala who knew who Bortak was. And this, and, and I got the, I got the meeting with the commander and the commander then verified that Bortak had been there. The U.S. Border Patrol had done trainings there that, um, the United States embassy funding was behind the, 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 uh, creation of the new border patrol. And this one's called the Chorti in Guatemala. And that was just one example of many examples of, of, um, this expansion of the, of the U.S. border abroad. This, what they call externalization or the extension of the zone of security, if you want to use the kind of state speak that's being used. And, um, Guatemala is one example of, to much to my surprise, um, over a hundred examples in countries all over the world where the U.S. border patrol, specifically BORTAC even, are going and doing trainings um, sending resources, creating border patrols, teaching uh, um, other countries how to patrol their borders, and this this whole idea of pushing out the U.S. borders. So, and according to to how the mission of stopping people from coming to the United States long before they get to U.S. shores, and um, this this is uh, something that's been happening for quite a while. It's been happening for decades in many ways. During, uh, in, in, in the 1980s, in fact, you could, you could go back to documents of INS, uh, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, going to Mexico and saying, we'll stop people coming, coming from different countries in Central America from crossing the Mexican border. Um, and so that's an example of how far it goes back. But it was, the programs were the programs really shifted post nine eleven. There's really a huge emphasis put on put on um, this ex- extension of the border, and you could really see where the core of this comes from from the nine eleven commission report. In the nine eleven commission report, there's a there's one quote in particular that's really revealing, and it says, "The American homeland is the planet." So the idea that the American homeland is everywhere. And thus, there's the underlying logic of this of this expansion of of the United States going to over a hundred countries and using the same units that are now found in in Portland, Oregon, or possibly in Chicago today, or in other cities around the United States. 
What gives these federal agents, uh, Todd Miller, um, and law enforcement agencies so much power? You've got Portland, Oregon, uh, which falls within 100 miles of the border with Canada. You've called about—you've talked about these constitution-free zones and how it relates to border security, uh, both the north, the south, but now Trump is saying he's sending it to, well, uh, many cities where there are Democratic mayors, particularly women and women of color who are mayors. Yes. Uh, the, the, so the BORTAC unit is, they're essentially U.S. Border Patrol agents. And the U.S. Border Patrol agents, as you just mentioned, Amy, they they work in what are known as the 100-mile zones, or as the ACLU put, constitution-free zones. So if one can imagine, you know, the contours of the United States, right, along the 2,000-mile U.S.-Mexico border, the 5,000-mile U.S.-Canada border, along the coast, and a band, if you imagine a band, uh, like an orange band or something like that along the contours, you, that is covering a huge chunk of the U.S. population, 200 million people are covered in what is known as the Constitution-Free Zone, where the U.S. Border Patrol works with extra-constitutional powers. And in that sense, where in, on the southern border, the idea of, of the U.S. Border Patrol agents snatching people off the streets or snatching people in the desert or snatching people in the various checkpoints that they can put up in these 100-mile zones happens every day, happens all the time. In a sense, it's like the extension of that border into places like Portland or Chicago, but as you mentioned, fit within the, the Constitution-free zone or the, the border jurisdiction. In Portland, close to the Canadian border and also along the coast, so along the coastlines, um, that's also in that those sorts of jurisdictions. And then when you look at BORTAC, which is you know the special forces unit of the U.S. Border Patrol, the ones that are doing the paramilitary style tactics, they um, are you know the Border Patrol on top of on top of the Border Patrol, right? In terms of being militarized, weaponized, um, they were formed in 1984 to quell uprisings in uh, detention centers for the Immigration and Naturalization Service, and then in they, they had a presence in 1992 in Los Angeles when there's unrest after the Rodney King incident. And it goes on and on. There's a long history of Bortak um, being involved in, 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 in unrest, and that seems to be part of their, their um, purpose. And so as Border Patrol has, has expanded in, in, in astronomical fashion over the last 25 years, particularly 4,000 to 21,000 agents, um, or the expansion of BORTAC then happens as well. And so in a way, it's a surprise. It's, it's in a way, it's, it's a quite a surprise, like the clip from Brian Williams. And then in a way, it's not a surprise at all to see that BORTAC is being a part of and being put in places where they're, where you know, from Washington, my view is unrest, right? But it's really people protesting that they're going to be showing up in Chicago, that they're going to be showing up in New York in places that are in the hundred mile zones. And, and I want to, re as, 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 uh, as people are quite aware of, there was an announcement in March that BORTAC or Bor that's Border Patrol unit was going to join forces with Immigration and Customs Enforcement and ICE to show, to do a show of force in the sanctuary cities, right? The sanctuary cities, um, at, to then to then go after undocumented people in in cities the same cities that where we're seeing them being deployed right now so in a way it's going hand in hand 
uh, with now with what was what was uh, announced in March with what's been going on actually for years now. Uh, Professor Cecilia uh, Menjivar, if you could also talk uh, about the state violence that's been deployed against immigrant communities uh, along the border and also what's been happening in detention centers uh, where mm -hmm. disappearances are, are routine often. Right. Um, yes, I, my research has focused um, not at the border, <clears throat> excuse me, away from the border, but I was doing, um, I, I've, I was doing quite a bit of research in Arizona, in um, Maricopa County, during the time when the sheriff um, of Maricopa County uh, used many similar techniques to terrorize the Latino population specifically. And um, I, at that time, I was interviewing Central American immigrants in the area who pointed me in this direction. They brought up to my attention the similarities between what they had lived during the civil wars in Guatemala and El Salvador and what they were living in, in Phoenix during the, the reign of terror that the sheriff created in Phoenix, for instance. And um, so it was um, their, their experiences that brought to my attention the similarities between technologies of, of state violence and state terror used during the civil wars in Latin America and what immigrant, Latino immigrants specifically, were living in cities in the United States, specifically, for instance, Phoenix, where that concentrated. And um, in relation to detention centers and disappearances in detention centers, what happens um, to immigrants who are sent to detention facilities is that they are sent to very remote places. They often lose contact with their families. Their families don't know where they are. I have had immigrants calling me, asking me to help them locate their family members because they don't know where they are held, being held. And so this, again, brings back memories to when in their home countries, they would go search for families who had been taken from their homes at night or from their places of work to be disappeared. And so the same, um, the same thing um, was happening here in, in, is happening here in the United States with 638 detention facilities throughout the country. It, each state has at least two detention facilities dedicated to to hold immigrants in detention, and so this is um, this the parallels are so 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 strong and so vivid that um, immigrants who have lived in, through both can very quickly point um, point that out to to one's attention. I can only think, uh, Professor Menjivar, I can only think about the words of Archbishop Romero um, as he did his last homily broadcast throughout El Salvador, March 24th, 1980. He was gunned down by a U.S.-backed death squad. Um, and he was saying the words uh, to the soldiers of El Salvador, I implore you, I beg you, I order you, stop the repression. Professor Cecilia Menjivar, professor of sociology at University of California, Los Angeles, and Todd Miller, um, author of a number of books, um, award-winning journalist, uh, including Empire of Borders, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Shea. Stay safe.